everyone? Welcome back to Debating Metal. I'm your host, Kenneth Dean, the Dean of Metal, along with my co-host, Chris Kay. Today, we're taking a trip down memory lane, going all the way back to the late 70s, as we begin a multi-part series on one of the most influential movements in heavy metal, the new wave of British heavy metal. With its beginnings tracing all the way back to the mid-70s, the term new wave of British heavy metal was coined by journalist Jeff Barton in May 1979. This movement spawned one of metal's biggest bands and some of its most influential musicians. In part one of this series, which spans the early years of the movement, we're going to discuss the influencers, the early bands, and the successes from 1975 to 1981. So we're going to talk about a lot of bands tonight, and some you know and some you don't, but all in the name of metal. And stick around to the end when we give you our take on the big four Zaxxon songs. All right, Chris, the new wave of British heavy metal part one. We've got a lot to talk about, so let's get straight to it. We're going to talk about the influences, the bands that we haven't heard, some moderate successes, and the successes. So let's um, let me go over real quick what the new wave of British heavy metal is for some folks out there who haven't heard of it, um, and and just kind of give an, a quick overview before we we dive right into it. The new wave of British heavy metal, and we're going to refer to it as new album a lot tonight, um, just because it's quicker and easier than saying all those words. Um, that was more than a fashion. It was more than just the music. It was a movement. Fashion-wise, Judas Priest opened the door, but Nwabam combined that leather look and added denim jackets and battle vests to that, and the heavy metal fashion was born that to this day still permeates the metal scene like, like no other fashion statement. I mean, I still wear battle vests. I still wear denim and... Uh, I. Do I still have my leather jacket? I think I gave away my leather jacket. Um, do you have your leather chaps? Uh, technically, I still do. <laughs> <laughs> but those were those are actually were, were my wife's chaps. They fit me at one point, but I have long since outgrown them. Um, oh lord! We it was funny. <laughs> she bought them. She bought them when we got back together after we had broken up for a while um, in two thousand six. And she, we went to a, a motorcycle, like, um, like a, almost like a car show kind of thing, but it was a motorcycle show. And so we were going through the, the, whatchamacallit, the, the flea market portion. And she saw these leather chaps and she bought them. They fit her, they fit me. We've both outgrown them. So <laughs> that's enough said about that, the leather chaps. <laughs> Anyhow, um, but like I said, you know, it, it was a movement and the youth of England, Scotland, Ireland and Wales, basically the United, the entire UK, um, they united to, together to, for the drive of doing something different than what their older generation, what their parents did that was becoming more and more bleaker by the day in England in or in the UK in general. So... Um, Let's go ahead and talk a little bit about that since we're, since I touched upon it, and that, that's where you're going to start talking about the influences. All right, so in 1973 through 1975, there was a recession in that region. Uh, there was a lot of social unrest. Uh, if you've ever listened to Rob Halford talk about you know, kind of the origins of the term heavy metal, um, it, it, it was a lot of these guys that were just 
upset with what was going on in their lives. They had no work, no ability to work. I mean, it's not that they didn't have ability to work. That That's the wrong phrasing. They had all the ability to work, but there was no work available. So they're just frustrated with, with society as a whole and their output, their way of expressing this this disdain for the way things were was through music. And the scene grew from there. Um, you know, bands that influenced the those early bands were Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, Deep Purple, bands we've you've you've heard of bands we've mentioned many times, time and again. Um, these were not metal bands, but they were hard rock that was the the prototype, the blueprint for what metal would become. There were British bands like Queen, Hawkwind, Budgie, Bad Company, Status Quo, Nazareth, Judas Priest's early rendition, and UFO and Thin Lizzy that all had some of those elements, the guitar solos, um, some of the, the, the drum work, etc. that would be incorporated into New Album. And then foreign bands like Blue Oyster Cult, Kiss uh, from the U.S., Rush from Canada, Scorpions from Germany and ACDC from Australia and many of the bands we just mentioned would evolve into metal But at that stage they were more of a hard rock outfit and would influence what would become new album You know when when um, you know in the 70s when when this Recession was happening and, it, and it, the, the the country you know economically came out of the recession There still was a, a large amount of people unemployed and these kids had nowhere to turn that that's initially what started the punk movement But the punk movement, you know, what 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 kind of killed the punk movement was the fact that these kids that were now looking to do something were looking to do it skilled they wanted to be able to play their instruments they wanted to be able to to be guitar heroes and stuff like that and so they they worked harder than where where the punk scene was just like let me go out there let me bang on my instrument come up with this song and you know get in and out as quickly as possible these are the guys that that turned into uh, the new album scene wanted more out of their music and you know and then bands like zeppelin and sabbath and deep purple they left the door open you know, as as they began to fall apart for you know, with Black Sabbath losing Ozzy uh, and and going through the motions in the last few Ozzy albums, uh, Led Zeppelin having their inner turmoil and then eventually disbanding in 1980 when John Bonham passed away, um, and then you know and and Deep Purple just going through all sorts of personnel changes that left the door open for a lot of these bands that you mentioned, the, the Queens, the Budgies, the the Judas Priests, and the Thin Lizzies to be able to create music. The, in in a different style, but yet still be heavy and hard, and and open the door for what became that new album scene. Yeah, I mean, coming out of punk, you mentioned that these people wanted to be very skilled at their instruments, what they were doing. It, there, there's always that kind of counterculture when there's an established thing going on, right? There's like we've talked about black metal before, where. When black metal arrived, it was in contrast to death metal, which was super skilled guitarist with uh, guitar solos and kind of this this um, change in the mindset of being kind of the opposite. And, you know, when you're coming out of punk, which is more about the attitude, this was more about sh kind of showing what 
what they were capable of. And I think that that ties in right with that, you know, frustration of not having jobs, not having um, the options to kind of like show what they could do in society in the that way instead showing what they could do musically you know it's a it's a it's an answer to the the question that's put out there in the world exactly um another one that we we didn't mention that was a major influence was motorhead and motorhead was not really technically a metal band but definitely had the sound definitely had the attitude the drum work etc and motorhead is an influence to so many metal bands and I would say a lot of people would consider them a metal band, even though Lemmy technically didn't. Well, you know, I mean, it's funny because they get categorized in so many different ways. Um, I mean, they, they are considered the first new album band, but in reality, if you listen to their sound, if you listen to their songs, they're, they are not new wave of British heavy metal yet. It was the fact that they were, they were, they were combining the sound and attitude of punk with a much harder edge and and that's kind of what some of these new album bands did. I mean, they had yeah. some, you know some of these new album bands had some speedy songs, um, but the the skill and and the 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 virtuosity of a lot of these musicians super you know just made it that much better. And that's the reason why they were to become a little bit more successful or a bigger scene than punk. Even though what's kind of weird is that punk quote unquote still kind of exists today, where a new album doesn't to some degree. Um, but yeah, Motorhead. At least not in the same form. Right, yeah. definitely so not a lot in the same of, Some of those bands. Oh, some of the bands. Exist, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Some of the bands exist and some of the bands still play that music, but it's it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like going to a bar and, and checking out your local band. Um, but yeah, so Motorhead was definitely one of those crossover kind of bands, you know, that, mm-hmm. that uh, you know, they, they played both sides of the, of the, of the coin on that, in that regards. But yes, huge, huge influence uh, on the on the scene. So let's get into this uh, this first wave here of of the new wave of British heavy metal. All right, so we're gonna go over what we would consider the the, the bands that you've really never heard of, or maybe just bands that really didn't get success. But there's a lot of reasons, and oftentimes it really boils down to um, just bad management and music executives taking advantage of bands you know stories as old as time um so we're also going to go over these in relation to a compilation album that came out in 1980 at the beginning of the scene and that was uh metal for mothers volume one um you're, you're going to recognize as we talk about this some of these bands but many of them you won't um but each of these is worth talking about at least to some degree because there's some stuff that unfortunately it just got left by the wayside in that early stage of, of you know 1980 1981 82 um 1979 even but uh some of these bands are really interesting so um i think the first one we're going to mention is, is kind of funny uh it's called ethel the frog and they're that's an odd name for a metal band um they, they were established in 1976 lasted till 1983 and then had a reunion in 198 or sorry in 2009 and i'm not really quite sure how true that is i couldn't find a lot of information on that they had one track on the metal for mothers compilation and that was fight back 
They had really not a whole lot of success. They had a cover of Eleanor Rigby. Uh, but if you listen through that album, the first album they released, Ethel the Frog in 1980, there's some interesting stuff on there. You know, I, I, I listened to Fight Back, and, you know, Fight Back, it, it was definitely a, a blend of coming out of the punk scene. It was a, a little bit of a punky sound to it, um, but then it, it definitely has that new album sound uh, overall. Um, chorus is a little weak, and I think that's the, the biggest reason why it really didn't do well. Um, solo on this is really, really basic on that song. I mean, like almost a beginner type. Super, yeah, you know, super basic. Um, picked slow, slow individual notes. Um, the cover of Eleanor Rigby is not bad, um, but you know, it, the recording of it is just it's it's so uh, primitive, if you want to say. You know, you take this, you get this primitive sound, but then you have the singer who's got all this reverb because you know that's the thing you got to do with singers. You got to give them the reverb so they can hear themselves and they echo and they sound great. <laughs> you know, but it sounds like shit in reality. Uh, you got to do reverb very lightly. Um, you know, so it's it's an okay cover. The Beatles song is obviously a much better version. So um, they were they were interesting. Uh, I, as you said, there was no. Um, to me, I, I couldn't find anything that really uh, corroborated any reformation of the band. So uh, I don't. Yeah, that was tough to find. So I don't know if it's valid or not. But yeah, that was that was information that was out there. Sometimes it's they may be reformed, but they may be just playing in like local clubs or something. So who knows? Um, so moving on, let's talk about Sledgehammer. I think you have some stuff to talk about. Sledgehammer. Um. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Sledgehammer uh, formed in 1978. Um, they existed up until about 1988, 89 or so like that. They're from Slow, Berkshire, England. Um, they released a couple of singles. Um, the, the song that was on Metal from Others was a self-titled uh, song called S- Sledgehammer. Uh, let me tell you, that song to me sounded very similar to a Zaxxon song. Uh, which we're, we're going to talk about Zaxxon a little bit later. Um, they did also have another single uh, called Living in the Dreams, or Living in Dreams, excuse me. Um, that's a pretty decent song uh, for the most part, though it, it kind of has a riff that kind of drones on the whole time. Um, the chorus isn't that catchy, so it's an okay song. But, you know, that's there's a reason why they didn't get too far. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't super impressed. The, the track itself, Sledgehammer, was all right. Um, but just never having an established album kind of wrecks you. Yeah, um, and then, but you they, can see why after listening to those. I mean, it's just not just there's, there's nothing there. But then again, you don't know what else was being heard at the time when they were playing live gigs. So true. Um, okay, so moving on, we're gonna mention a band uh, real briefly. Uh, this is EF Band. Uh, so interestingly enough, not everybody from the new wave of British heavy metal, British it being the keyword, was from Britain. This band was from Gothenburg, Sweden. Uh, they lasted from 1978 to 1986. And we've mentioned Gothenburg in the past. Uh, there's a big scene that came out in the you know 80, late 80s, early 90s. There was a, a lot of these bands that were forming around a group called At The Gates, and you might be familiar with the Gothenburg melodic death metal scene. Um, but interestingly enough, they had their own scene back then, which was part of New Wave of British Heavy Metal. Um, the, the only real 
interesting thing I found about them, uh, aside from their their song "Fighting for Rock and Roll," which was pretty basic, off of Metal for Mothers, uh, was that a very young Andy LaRock was a member when he was still using his his birth name Anders Alhag. So, and I apologize if I mispronounce that, but um, Andy LaRock we've mentioned before. He was in Death, played with uh, King Diamond, amazing guitarist. I like Andy. I, he's a good producer as well. Um, you know the the fighting for rock and roll song that's on that's featured on metal metal for mothers. Uh, like you said, pretty basic. It is definitely a new album sound. Um, mm-hmm. So give them that for for being able to replicate that pretty well. Um, but other than that, I mean, they didn't have much of a, a long lasting impression. So absolutely. All right, so then moving on, we're going to mention one briefly. Uh, they also had a track on Metal for Mothers. This is Nuts. Um, <laughs> that's an interesting <laughs> name of a nuts, band. This is Nuts, man. This is Nuts. <laughs> um, so uh, they lasted from 1973 to 1980. Uh, and that's kind of questionable because I couldn't quite find the ending of the band um, and how they de- or deformed, I guess. Um, they changed their name to Rage after this pretty much directly after this. Um, but they actually were a hard rock band in the seventies and they had some pretty decent stuff in the hard rock realm. Uh, they released three albums called nuts, nuts Two, as in T O O and hard nuts, <laughs> two nuts. Yes. Um, and they toured with, um, a couple major bands uh didn't they support black sabbath at one point i think they supported black sabbath and uh did they support maiden at all or maybe it was another band um but no yeah they I mean, they they had their chances um the thing about the thing about nuts or and slash rage because they did change their name to rage what what the story about them really is is about perseverance and they tried to to change with every scene so that they could continue to try and make it. And it was one of these bands that, you know, no matter what happened, what was going on, they just could never get over that hump. Um, and that, and that's just the way it is. Um, the, the song that's on metal from others is called bootleggers. Now for the life of me, I have no idea what that means. Um, it's just a really weird, (laughs) the, weird way to say whatever it is they say i i almost feel like it's some sort of british slang um but i i can't confirm that i looked something up and i couldn't see i couldn't find anything um but i've always wondered if it was if it was like a combination of like bootlickers and bootleggers or something like that i i i'm not 100 percent sure well it maybe it was it, maybe it's got a similar story to like in the god of the vita which is supposed to say in the in the garden of eden but the guy was so drunk he couldn't say it that way Could uh, be. and so you know maybe he was just trying to say bootleggers and they just came out leggers and they just left it that way <laughs> <laughs> who knows we move on uh <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so, I do. I did want to say one more thing about sure. that. That so you mentioned that they changed with every, uh, you know, every kind of scene, right? And we've talked about that with other bands, specifically coming out of the the eighties, moving into the nineties when uh, grunge took over. There was a lot of bands that tried to kind of transition into that and had the same kind of thing happen to them. And so history repeats itself a lot. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, listen to Motley Crue uh, when they try to become grunge. 
No thanks, uh, I'm good. Um, say what? So what? I said no thanks, <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> yeah, you know, bands like that, they tried to do that and it didn't work very well, did it? No, it did not. Stick to what um, you know. <laughs> so we're going to move on to a band called A to Z. Uh, they were one of the premier New Wobbum bands at the time in 1979, but they only lasted until 1982. They're from Manchester, England. Uh, released one album, which was a live album, called The Witch of Berkeley. And there was a lot of hype behind this band, and a lot of uh, uh, fellow musicians and people that were in the scene were were saying kind of these were this was one of the bands to look for. And they just really didn't go anywhere, um, mostly because of bad management. We mentioned that kind of at the top of the show, that it's going to be a kind of continuing theme through most of these bands, to be honest. Um, but yeah, one live album in 1980, and then it wasn't long before they just, they really didn't put out any other new stuff, any new songs. So it's hard to maintain a career that way. You know, first of all, if you if your first and only album is a live album, that's an issue. That's a problem. And and maybe there was someone sitting there saying, "Hey, look, it worked for Kiss as far as they released a live album, they became huge." You know, look at UFO; they had a huge live album. So let's just cut to the chase and do the live album. Maybe that's what management told them. Who knows? But that is not the way I think it should have gone. Um, who knows? You know, uh, I, I I did catch a bit of one song called Treason that's on a different compilation, and it's okay. I mean, it's just pure new album sound, and, and, you know, there's a reason why these bands don't make it. It's just it's not, it, it, there's something, it, nothing that stands out above the rest, you know, and that's that's also going to be a continuing theme with certain some of these bands. But sometimes there's bands that have talent and skill, and unfortunately, they don't have good direction. They don't have somebody telling them, you know, this this is what you should do differently to kind of uh, cultivate your sound. Right, and exactly. That that was a huge problem at the time. So it, it, there's no telling. I mean, they could have gone somewhere, but again, bad management is bad management. It's it's never going to cater to you know growing anything um so moving on let's see let's talk about a briefly very briefly about a band called toad the wet sprocket and you may have heard that name before but this is not the alternative rock band from the late 80s early 90s um they released a song on metal for mothers called blues in a it is probably the 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 track that does not fit this compilation um, you said you had something to say about them. Well, okay. So, you know, I heard blues and a, and I'm like, why is this on this record? Okay. And then I realized that this record was put out by EMI records, which is a major label in, at least in Europe at, at the time. And the, the issue with that is that when you have a major label that is compiling, uh, uh, an album of unsigned bands, you're never really going to get a good, a good, good group of songs however there are a couple of named bands that are on this compilation that did make it but that's a different story because you can always you know step in shit every so often and find gold um but toad to west Rocket was not that and um even though the compilation was you know neil k who was a huge guy in the scene 
uh, helped put this compilation together, sometimes, you know, decisions are, are, are made that just don't go. Anyhow, uh, Blues and A, not a new album song. However, they did release several singles. So Toad the West Brocket did put out some singles in the late, 80, late 70s, early 80s. Um, and one of them, it was called Reaching for the Sky. That is actually a pretty cool song. Um, and what I noticed about that, they had that song, they had a song called One Glass of Whiskey. Um, what I noticed about these songs is that there was, uh, and I, I, don't, I can't call it an influence, but there is something very Maiden-esque about their style of playing in that they're playing this new album kind of sound. And then all of a sudden, mid, mid-song, they're shifting. They change rhythms. They change the pattern. They change the melody. It, it's, it, it completely changes. Very similar to how Iron Maiden will change you know, in the middle of a song. But mm, that, okay. you know, that was something that, yeah, Iron Maiden did that right off their first album with Phantom of the Opera. But that became a signature thing for Iron Maiden way later on. Um, so you know, it, it was kind of cool. So what I what I gathered from Toad the West Sprocket is overall they were a band that shoulda coulda been bigger, um, but for one reason or another never went far, and probably has a lot to do with management. They had skills, I could tell they had skills, but um, <sighs> you know. There's not much out there regarding their information, obviously, because Toad the Wet Sprocket, the the American band, kind of took over that name in the you know in the 80s and 90s. They made a name for themselves, but this band kind of got left behind in the wayside. However, late last year, a record company of some sort put together an anthology of their songs, and uh, it was released, and it, it's. It was called Rock and Roll Runners, I believe. And so if anyone out there wants to get their hands on some pretty decent new album music, that is something to pick up. That's really interesting for, for this far along for that to kind of resurface. And you said it was it was old recordings, right? Yeah, it's all the original recordings from the 80s. That's or crazy. 70s, late 70s. Yeah, it, it's very strange, you know, and, and uh, I, I, I saw that and I'm like, that's odd, but it's an anthology. So it goes over whatever their career is. I don't, I don't know the details of it because it wasn't too many details, but it is available on Amazon. So there you go. Oh, wow. Okay. That, that's really cool. I, I think there is with this kind of YouTube generation, um, you know, the, the, there's a lot of, I would say, um, what's like garage historians, I guess maybe that's a good way to put it. Like yeah. guys that, that they can find this information, scour the web, you know, contact people. Like there's a lot of videos out there that are just people, you know, chronologuing history and of any type, not just like, you know, things like what you would learn in a history book, but about music and stuff now too. And people are just doing it from home, which I think is awesome. So, uh, who knows? Maybe it's just somebody that really liked them and thought, "Let's let's figure out a way to to put this out there in the world." It could have been just somebody that was trying to make money. I don't know, <laughs> but um, it's interesting. Um, okay, so moving on, uh, let's talk about a band called More. 
Uh, more l lasted from 1980 to 1982. Then they resurfaced in 1985, and then again in 1998 to 2000. There's a bit of re uh, resurgence in that time period of, of some of these new album bands uh, with, you know, metal kind of taking a different tone. And then in 2011 to present, they've kind of been around. Um, we're just going to talk in this context of to 1982, uh, but they released an album in 1981 called Warhead. Um, there uh, was a, f a cover, sorry, there was a cover of Fire by the Crazy World of Arthur Brown that they did. And what what's significant about that is a lot of metal musicians will reference the, the crazy world of Arthur Brown as uh, one of those influences that is kind of overlooked often. Um, he had the look, some of the, the, the corpse paint is inspired by some of the stuff. And some of that music is like early prototypical metal, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, Gene Simmons cites the crazy world of Arthur Brown as an influence. Um, let me tell you the version that they put out on this record is actually pretty good. Um, the the Warhead album, actually, overall, if if anybody's out there and can find that album, it's on YouTube. They have the whole album, so if you can figure out a way to download it and, and put it on MP3, that would be a great idea because guess what? It's actually a pretty good album. Um, it was released by Atlantic Records in 1981, so they their first album was a major label release. So the the record company obviously saw something in saw something in them that was pretty good. Um, they were some pretty good players. Their version of Fire is awesome. I mean, to me, it's better than the original. because Yeah, has, the recording's better for sure. Yeah, as, as a metal song or, a, you know, for, and a metal for that, that day and age in 1980 or 81, that's a really cool version of that song. I mean, to me, it's much better, much better. Um, I mean, I love the way they, they, they turned the keyboard part of fire into a chugging guitar riff. And that's really, really cool. Um, and they've got other songs in there. Very new album, very new album in many cases, but it, it is pretty cool. And check it out. You said 2011 to present, this band still exists to this day. And there, although from 1980, when they started, there are no original members left. There is a member, uh, his name is, um, uh, Baz, I can't remember the last name, I, I forgot it, um, who is their bass player, and he has been with the band since 1982. So he's been there, you know, now 40 years. So that that's pretty cool, although he does not appear on any of the two albums that they released. Here's the other thing about more that I don't know if you got this last time when we were talking about them recently, but the original singer for more was a man named Mario, or excuse me, a man named Paul Mario Day. Many people oh. out there who are very, very smart will remember he is Iron Maiden's first singer. I guess I'm very smart. <laughs> Validation. So, so uh, yeah, he was fired from my from Maiden for lack of stage charisma, um, and made it all the way to more. So, not bad, but I. Don't think he's the singer that's on the records. Uh, he was there only in 1980. Um, so that, that tells you that. So Maybe he, his he, stage charisma didn't carry him through more. No, it didn't. <laughs> but actually, you know, if, if anyone can get their hands on this, this is a pretty, pretty good record. And they do have one album. Their second album is available on Spotify. 
Very cool. Good to know. All right. So moving on, we're going to talk about a, a band called Fist fr uh, that was around from 1978 to 1982. Uh, then again from 2001 to 2006. And again from 2013 to the present. Uh, they're from South Shields, England. And they had an album called Turn the Hell On from 1980. Um, so they are... <sighs> A little bit of a mixture of like the 70s and early 80s rock or I mean uh, metal I would say and then they do have that very new album sound um, but what I what I think really stuck out to me I guess is their guitar work their guitar solos are really nice yeah I mean they they have this blend of new album and kind of the 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 seventies the late seventies hard rock sound that that kind of they they did a good job of blending together um, yes and so I, I I enjoyed what I heard from them here's the funny thing about that um, they did a cover of the song the wanderer which is the nineteen sixty one song by Dion and you know some songs you 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 want to cover them. Sort of like, you know, this takes me back to Twisted Sister doing Leader of the Pack. It's like, it might it might play well in a, in a club, but I don't think it really plays well on, on, a, on an album when you are trying to garner fans outside of the club you just played at last night. You know, I, it, it like it, it worked okay for for Twisted Sister. They did a good job. They they released it on the, on their first EP, but then they then they released it later on on Come Out and Play, and it just it, it failed. It tanked. This, although not a bad version, they have some good drum work and they have some good guitar work on it because they're good players. It it just doesn't work for me because you're talking about taking a metal band and and upgrading a doo wop song. Essentially, it's not really doo-wop, but you know, early '60s was just that that early rock and roll sound, and it, to me, it really overall doesn't work. So there you have that. Yeah, a lot of the covers at this time, to be honest, I'm not a big fan of because I mean, they they don't again, fit that new album sound. Right. Although the Toad West Sprocket version of Fire is still pretty good. Yeah. The other thing, <laughs> the other thing about that, they had a single called Too Hot. That was a catchy song. So that was, and it was kind of like an anti-date song. It was really weird. It, the, the the lyrics are sort of how Desmond Child turns lyrics around. You know, I hate myself for loving you. They, they um, I forgot how the lyrics went for Too Hot, but it, it's it's kind of backwards. You know, like you're uh, like they were the worst catch in town or something like that. You know, it was really really weird kind of okay. way. <laughs> but it, a cool song nonetheless. But I think overall, I, I they were to me probably more I don't want to put them as parody but they kind of fall into that category almost you know okay so but I mean they weren't they weren't a parody band but when you're when you're doing a cover of a song like The Wanderer which again it wasn't horrible but it's you're 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 converting a, a different kind of uh, style of music to, to, to blend it to metal there's a certain way you had to do it, and I don't think that was the right song to pick. And then Too Hot was it was just a like an anti-hero kind of song. Gotcha. All right, so moving on to another band called Alcatraz. Alcatraz, um, 
with a K, not the the band, you know, with uh, Ingve Malmsteen and Graham Bonnet. Um, this was a, another band that only lasted from 1980 to 83. They had one album in 1981 called Young Blood, and um, you know, not bad, just nothing really that stood out to me. Nothing stood out to me either. Um, you know, and you could see why they didn't last very long. You know, it just wasn't it wasn't attractive music to me. Yeah, a little bit not it, it hadn't fully evolved into the new album sound to me. Like they were still kind of in that that more rock sound, but guitar solos I think are what really defined them as new album. Right, I could I could see that. Um and that's that is a trend for some of these bands to be sure like they, they they didn't really fully evolve into that new album sound um so moving on to one called bleak house some of you might have heard of them uh because of their affiliation with another famous metal band um they lasted from 1972 to 1983 and then they had a one-off show this year uh, which I thought was really interesting, and I and I imagine that is is relevant to who we're going to talk about in, in relation. Um, so th- they had an album in 1980 called The Rainbow Warrior. They they had one song that has some some distinct similarities to Metallica's Wel- Welcome Home Sanitarium. Now I tend to think that this is more just based on the chord progression, which. Chord progression is, can be very similar in a lot of songs because of music theory, um, but who knows? And I would say that, yeah, it does have some similarities, but they're still two very distinctive songs, and Rainbow Warrior is a good song. So uh, what do you think about that? You, I, I talked to you about it briefly and, and when we, when we kind of were discussing this episode. Um, the first thing that stood out to me was this was the first few notes sounded very similar to Nirvana's Heart Shaped Box. Then after those several few notes, it went into a structure of song that was very reminiscent to Welcome Home Sanitarium. Um, vocal melody wise, it's not the same, no. um, but I could see the similarities. Uh, chord progression wise, um, my, the similarities to me are not necessarily chord progression wise so much as it's just song structure. You have this song that starts off with individual notes that goes into you know to uh, small chords, quiet chords that you know are that that lead to a, a quiet melody for the vocals that go into a heavier, harder sound, a little bit quicker, come back down. Song structure-wise, I mean, it's virtually identical in terms of Welcome Home Sanitarium. But to me, note for note, not, you know, there's there's no there's no similarities in that just structure-wise. That that's my opinion. But I could see I could see where the similarities go. That, that, that's for sure. I think it's it's one worth checking out if you've never heard it. It's very interesting. Um and I and I like the music itself, so it's definitely worth checking out. Um, but a band that, again, had pretty poor management and didn't really go anywhere a lot often because of it. So, um, moving on to a band called White Spirit, uh, they lasted from 1975 to 1981, and then they've apparently reformed this year. I had a little bit of trouble trouble finding information on that. Um, 
So uh, Yannick Gears from um, Anna Iron Maiden was actually a member of the band, and I, I guess it's really what makes them stand out. Um, I did listen to a little bit of it, and it's not bad. Um, again, this is just a band that I guess doesn't super stand out, but that connection um, is very important to mention. Yeah, I mean, obviously, when you think about the, the, the connection, you know, Yannick becoming a, a close friend of Bruce's, uh, you know, Bruce Dickinson, the Iron Maiden singer, who then he used him on his uh, solo album, his first solo album, uh, Tattooed Millionaire. And when Adrian Smith decides to leave Iron Maiden, you know, Yannick joined the band. So, and he's been there ever since. So, yeah, so th- those connections were made. You know, there's so many of those connections that happen in the 80s, specifically because of the scene. Um, so that that's uh, definitely really interesting in that regards. The cool thing about them, and then this might be, it's cool, but at the same time, it might be the reason why they weren't able to succeed as a new album band is they were built differently. They were built more like a Deep Purple, more like a Rainbow. They had a keyboard player rather than another guitar player type of thing, you know, and that's where the the differences lie. So you hear the keyboards as like the second guitar and rather than being two guitar virtuosos, you know, trading licks back and forth. And I think that's what separated them. But at the same time, that's what kind of differentiated them from being a really true new album type band. Yeah. It makes them, it makes them stand out in a way because nobody else was really doing that. Uh, that was more of a, a thing that bands like like you mentioned, like Deep Purple would do. Deep Purple's sound is very um, synonymous with that that uh, keyboard rhythm uh, or right. the keyboard trading off. And yeah, that it does really set them apart. Um, so another band. We've only got a couple more in the who the hell are these guys category. Um, <laughs> Uh, that would be Wild Horses from 1978. They only lasted till 1981. Uh, they're from London, England. They released one album called Wild Horses in 1980. Um, but some of these names you might be familiar with. Uh, Jimmy Bain on bass, lead vocals, and guitars. So Jimmy Bain of uh, Dio fame. Um, you got Neil Carter uh, on lead guitars and keyboards and Brian Robbo Robertson on lead guitars, lead, uh, vocals and bass. And uh, Brian Robertson would be in motorhead a few years later and, um, Clive Edwards on drums. So this was a little bit different again, kind of not quite fully having that fully developed new album sound. Um, but definitely some interesting stuff. These guys, um, they were they were interesting for sure. I mean, they 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 were a kind of you know more established, I guess you could say. So they they had a record deal. They were on EMI, um, so they had a little bit more money to produce a better kind of album. But at the same time, they're still playing new album kind of songs. Um, although they did have a connection because you know because of Brian Robertson, they had a connection to Thin Lizzy with Phil Knott and Scott Gorham. They actually wrote a couple songs on there, you know, with you know, Robertson and, and Jimmy Bain with Scott Gorham. So, so there's that connection. And so that's where, when you have that kind of connection, you can have those kinds of things happen, 
you know, what happens after that? You know, is your management taking care of you? Then, you know, why why wasn't that band more successful? You know, there's all sorts of reasons. So there's a couple things that are really cool about them, too, is you can actually find videos on YouTube um, of them playing. And Phil Linnett actually did a few shows with them. So there is that, again, like you mentioned, there's that connection with them. Um, and then one thing is Jimmy Bain is actually a really good singer. And so, you know, <laughs> you, you listen to him and he harmonized with Dio a lot when he was in that band, but you never really heard him in the context of being a lead singer. So it's in, in, really nice to go back and be able to find these videos and see that kind of stuff. So very cool one. Yeah. Very cool. And our last from this group is a band called Witchfind. So the, not Witchfinder General. Uh, we're going to talk about them on the second episode. Um, but Witchfind was from 1973 to 1984. And they re rejoined in 1999 and have been playing since. They're from Chesterfield, Derbyshire, England. Um, they had two albums in this, this uh, time period. So Give Them Hell in 1980. And then Stage Fright, also in 1980. Um, you know, Witchfind has some some definitely interesting stuff. I was more familiar with Witchfinder General, so I I honestly overlooked them for a long time because I thought it was just a, a misprint or something like that. I I wasn't super familiar with them. the The only thing that I can say about them that I know of is you know, I heard the song called "Leaving the Deer." Um, so here's the thing about leaving Nadir. It has all the earmarks of a modern Iron Maiden song. Slow intro, kind of moody. Then it kind of stops, picks up, up tempo midsection. Um, so, and, and, you know, and it goes on from there. Very new album kind of song from that point forward. Um, the funny thing about that intro section is that it kind of really, if you if you listen to it, kind of has like a Remember Tomorrow, Strange World kind of vibe to it uh, from Iron Maiden uh, that, you know, you could see where the connections is in this whole scene that's happening out there in, in, in England mm -hmm. at this time. So, yeah, that that's what I got on them. Song's not bad. So, I, you know, it, I, I would, if you could pick it up or listen to it somewhere, it's pretty cool. Uh, you just got to give it a chance. So they, to me, when I listen to them, I think they have some kind of cross in the sound between like two bands we're going to talk about later, the, um, are a little bit between Diamond Head and like that Soundhouse, uh, Soundhouse tape era of Iron Maiden. Like they, they, the, the recording is a little bit primitive, but there's something there in that sound. Yeah, that's exactly kind of what I was referring to is where they're they're kind of maidenly sounding overall in general. You know, yes, primitive recording, very similar to Soundhouse tapes. Um, so yeah, I can see I can see where you make that connection. All right, so that brings us to the moderate successes. So if you while listening out there, you understand we went through a lot of uh, bands that you have not heard of probably never heard. I 
hadn't heard some of these bands. And now I had some of the names already because I have a couple of compilations with them and I had heard some of these in the background, but I never really paid close attention. But going back and doing the research for this is really cool. So um, if you get a chance, pick up a compilation from something new album and I'll give you some, some names of a couple C- CDs or albums to pick up later on. But um, for now, let's concentrate on moving forward. So the moderate successes, these are bands that, that, really, really did have a strong influence on future metal bands. And they did kind of have a little bit of success um, to stand out above the rest of the crowd um, in in the new album scene, but didn't make it all the way. So the first one I'm going to name is probably the most famous of them all, um, or maybe the second most famous of them all, depending on how you look at it and depending on which band is your favorite. Um, I'm talking about Diamond Head. Um, They are really, really, really famous because of Metallica. While they were a really strong band during the new album scene, during the new wave of British heavy metal, they just piss poor management, piss poor lots of things that basically derailed their career early on. And, And it was one of those things where it's like, you know, bad luck just kept coming at them but yet they they have one of the most influential first albums out there to the point where metallica recorded four songs of theirs and actually were playing five songs on a regular basis of theirs to the i mean i'm I'm pretty sure you've heard the stories chris when metallica first played live gigs in in uh, la this is before they moved to san francisco when they were playing in LA, they were playing these songs as if they were their own because they knew no one knew who they were. So, but then as they as they progressed and made their their own original music, then you know they they started to say that this was you know these were covers. But they you know they almost purported them like they were their own because they needed to get a gig. Yeah, I've I've definitely heard that before. Um, it was a little bit more of a lawless land back then in that regard <laughs> yeah um but but yeah. yeah i mean i i had diamond head's first record on cd um i had found it in my local store which no longer exists um but i i was a huge fan of this album uh, my my biggest complaint with diamond head was always the, the vocals being so moany i guess is a good way to put it <laughs> It's funny because it's moany, but it is it is exactly what the new album scene was. I mean, they they were no different in in terms of their vocals than any of the other new album bands that were not like an Iron Maiden or Def Leppard. I was gonna say, yeah, they're definitely not like Iron Maiden, right? But, but when you think about the general population of the new album bands, they were very very similar to the rest of them. Oh, for sure. Um, yeah. you know, so you know, and. If you haven't caught by now, the album that we're talking about that was their first release is called Lightning to the Nations. It came out in 1980. Um, Sean Harris on vocals, Brian Tatler on guitar, Colin Kimberly on bass, and Duncan Scott on drums. I mean, that is one of the most influential albums to come out of the new album scene that wasn't from a band named Iron Maiden. So, um, like I said, you know, they, they were big influence. Megadeth, Metallica, probably a lot of the guys that were in the... Um, bay area thrash scene you know so that 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 tells you how good this album is i mean songs like it's electric uh songs like it's electric the prince um sucking my love uh 
what was that? Those the two songs, um, Am I Evil? And what was the one? Uh, Helpless. You know, so it's, I mean, Helpless is on the 598 EP from Metallica. You know, Am I Evil is the B-side to Creeping Death. You know, um, what's the other one? It's Electric is on Garage Inc. I mean, it, you know, the Prince was a B-side from the, from the Black Album. So, they recorded four of their songs. That's how much of an influence Diamond Head was to Metallica. Oh, for sure. So that, that's pretty impressive. Um, what do you have? So, what do you have to say about Diamond Head? Sorry. Oh, I like I said. I mean, I I went out and sought out that album. So a quick story: the one of the the sad moments in in owning CDs. Um, so I was taking this disc, which was very hard to find in the, the late 90s, early 2000s, out of my car, and um, it snapped in half. And I was, I was very upset. I was walking into my house, and I was, I was going to show my sister that I had snapped the CD in half, and a fly was flying. This is, like, the coolest thing I've ever done. I've never done anything cool in my life. So <laughs> I took the CD, and I there was a fly flying around it landed on a bookshelf and i apologize to the uh the PETA people out there but i i actually killed the fly with the cd on the 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 small end like a like a ninja never done anything that you, cool you, in my life you didn't you were doing the mr miyagi with a cd exactly except for i didn't let it go at the end it was it wasn't alive anymore <laughs> it's it, canceled so um, the one thing i didn't like about diamond head and this is has nothing to do with diamond head is the fact that the when you just said you picked up their cd the availability of this album was was nil in the late 80s early 90s it just didn't exist um basically there were bootleg versions of of this album out by record labels that were trying to make a buck mm-hmm and so there was technically for a while there was no official release on cd and you know when you're talking about record companies and they were official record companies that neat records uh combat um you know vertigo lightning specifically um uh uh what's that thing music for nations um those labels were trying to get this album released um and it in I think of one of them eventually got the official release, but it was just like hard as anything to get the import for it because there was no official, you know, like there were more bootlegs out there available on CD than there were official releases. And that's what sucked about and it. Yeah, it worked against them for sure. All right. So I'm going to talk about a band called Angel Witch. Um, so Angel Witch from 1979 through present, sorry, for 1976 through present. Now there was a few years that they were inactive um, here and there, but for the most part, Kevin Hayborn, who is the the guitarist and vocalist, never really technically gave up on the project. So um, they released an album in 1980 uh, called Angel Witch, their eponymous record, um, from London, England. Um, they are considered one of the most notable, or I'm sorry, this is considered one of the most notable albums in New Album history. Um, it has the architect, archetypical sound of New Album. Um, there is a track on there called Angel Witch, the, you know, that's uh, the title track. 
that is an earworm. It will stick in your head. It's very catchy. It is... When I think of, like, that new album sound, a lot of times I think of this band. Um, they have, again, been on and off ever since 1980. They have they had their original members, Kevin Riddles, on bass and keyboards, and Dave Hogg on drums. It's a pretty small band, three members uh, for that kind of sound. Um, but they would kind of, like, cycle through members, had a really bad uh, track record with, with touring, and no, to no fault of their own, this was, again, uh, issues with their uh, management. Basically, you know, they would go somewhere, then they, they weren't allowed to play there anymore, had to leave, you know, just constant issues with management. Uh, it's, it's the theme of tonight. Yeah, I mean, management management is your your greatest supporter and your biggest detriment in many cases um and you know you get you get someone like rod smallwood from iron maiden who basically has brought this band to heights unseen you know and then you have guys that just will screw the shit out of you every which way possible um angel which dude that album is cool uh the song is cool like you said it's an earworm it is it is a really really cool song they've got um uh just the, the whole album in general is pretty neat. And um, when you listen, to, when you look at the track listing, there's a song on there called uh, "Angel of Death," not the Slayer song, but it is covered by the band Exodus on one of the more recent releases um, that came out. Uh, not the last one, but not Persona Non Grata, but the one before that. I can't remember what it's called. And then um, the song that ended up being on Metal from Others is a song called Baphomet and that song is um that song is kind of interesting because it's not your prototypical new album kind of song but it's it's almost the introduction let me let me correct that the introduction to the song is very black sabbathy very doomy sludgy and then it kind of turns into a new album kind of song so there's there's things in it that that uh, influence different directions, but uh, other than that, I mean, it's a pretty cool album. I mean, I have a, a version of the album; and it's really really cool. Um, so if you get get a chance, they just released uh, the 30th anniversary edition a few years ago. So it's or 35th. It's pretty neat. Yeah, that's one we're definitely going to talk about again in the next couple episodes too. And and for those uh, when I was mentioning before the Exodus album, it, the the album Blood In Blood Out, it's a bonus track, uh, the song Angel of Death. All right, next up, um, I'm going to go ahead and talk about a band called Praying Mantis. Um, you know, it's not the, the the little animal that eats. You know, uh, where the, the the woman eats the the head of the male in the middle of copulation, but. It's the new album metal band uh, that started in 1974, lasted all the way to 1982, uh, reformed again in 1990, uh, up until 2003, and then they reformed again in 2008, and they are still currently together. Um, they're from London, England. Um, they're, they have multiple vocalists, so kind of like a Beatles vibe, Kiss vibe, if you, if you wish. Um, their song that appeared on Metal for Mothers was Captured City. Again, it was an okay song. Um, they released an album in 1991 called Time Tells No Lies. That 
in and of itself. That first album is a really big story. And uh, that's where their story kind of, their career kind of goes sideways. They were, they were, yeah, they recorded this album. They recorded a version of the song, I Surrender, which was a Russ Ballard song. Uh, Many of you may know it as uh, a hit single by Rainbow. Uh, And that's where the story kind of conflicts. They recorded this version at the same time that Rainbow recorded their version, and they were both about to release it. And basically, Rainbow had enough pull to make Praying Mantis uh, not release it and have to choose a different song off of their debut album. So you got a band like Rainbow with a ton of you know music industry influence, new band from England, not a lot of pull. They got shut down. They end up releasing a single called Cheated, which is the first song off their debut album. It reaches number 69 on the UK charts. Doesn't do much else after that. But I Surrender is an international top 10 hit for Rainbow. So there you go. Um, the song Cheated, it's got a nice melody to it, but it's definitely not an I Surrender. So, uh, And again, their management issues is what uh, led to their disillusion several times times over the years what do you got about them so praying mint is 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 one of those bands that like they could have been something but um they're kind of they're known by i would say more of other people in the music scene like they have their fan base and they've they've been around for most of this time since 1982 uh you know with i would say what 13 years of, of gap in between a couple times. Um, right. But they are, they have a, a staying power to some degree. They've been around all this time. Um, I, I think that first album, it's, it's kind of weak because it, it's not very focused. It has moments where it feels very new album and then moments where it feels like the record company is telling them to do something against what they are. And that's, that's never been done before. <laughs> no. And you know, it's, it, I believe it was a major label that released it. So you've got all these politics that are being played, you know, behind the scenes and that's never ever going to work unless unless the band has a, a, a really influential say it's just so hard to get past certain politics mm-hmm. and if it's not a strong record if you're not a strong strong band musically it, it, you know you get taken advantage of you get walked over you get pushed around it's a tough thing and then i think that's one of the, the things that happened to them early on you know they were probably very uh close to a lot of the guys in the scene but they just could not get past a certain point because of certain things yes all right what do you got next um i'm going to talk about an all-female group um so band called girl school they played from all the way back in 1978 to the present so they've been around all this time they still have i believe two original members uh, so that's pretty impressive and not a huge you know, you know, a lot of these bands will have 45 members, including your grandma was uh, their drummer at some point. Well, um, yeah, I remember when my grandmother was part of the yeah. band. I remember that. Um, <laughs> but this band was a little bit tighter. 
only had a few members, which is I think is really cool to see that. Um, they released Demolition in 1980 and then St. Valentine's Day Massacre in 1981 uh, with Motorhead. Now, um, they were called what? Head Girl? Yeah, so the, the 1981 Massacre EP that came out, it came out under the moniker Head Girl because it was a full-blown collaboration between Motorhead and Girl School. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, if you get a chance to listen to that, that is also really interesting. Um, Girl School, I had their first album. Um, there was one song, Emergency, that I was familiar with, and back when I was trying to find every bit of rock and metal that I could find, um, this was one album that did pique my interest, uh, especially because I, when I was really young, I, you know, seeing a band that was, uh, you know, girls playing metal, um, that was unique and interesting. And I, I think it's more common in the scene now. You have, you have metal bands with female vocalists. Um, I mean, even, even in death metal. You have female vocalists now, um, but it, I think it's it was maybe a little bit novel, but but at at the same time, actually good music. Yeah, Girl School was definitely um, pretty cool music. Uh, they, you know, they had their they were very close to Motorhead, um, so that's why how the the producer Vic um, Male was the one who produced uh, Motorhead and he produced Girl School, and that's how he got them together. Um, so. You know, they, they the big song from that was um, "Please Don't Touch," and it was a full blown collaboration. All I think what seven of them were were on recording, so it it tells you exactly how that collaboration went. I mean, they literally were all playing, um, so that was pretty cool. Uh, I like the fact that it's an all girl band. I mean, you know, girls can play too. You know, we we you and I what have seen the Iron Maidens twice. I think I, I know I've seen them twice myself have you seen them both times with me i think i've just seen them with you once once okay i've seen the iron maidens twice they're freaking cool and they can play i you know so um an all-girl iron maiden tribute band think about that so but getting back to to girl school girl school they were they were players and like you mentioned earlier there was two members that are still there kim mcauliffe which is the lead singer and the guitar player she is still, she's been with the band since day one, still there. And the drummer, Denise Dufort, she's also been there since day one. So that is, you know, kudos to them for being there and, and, and lasting this long and making a, a career of it, you know, when it's extremely hard, especially when you don't, when you fail. Because they, they, their biggest thing is they failed in America and they literally went back to England with their tails between their legs. But they just said, you know what? We're going to keep going. Who cares? And and more power to them. They they pres- they persevered and they have still had a career to this day. Indeed. All right. So who do you got next? All right. I'm going to go ahead and talk about the Tigers of Pang Tang. So they uh, formed in 1978 up until 1984. They reformed again a year later for a couple more years. And then during the uh, resurgence of all those bands in the late 80s, 1999, they got together and they've been together ever since. Uh, again, these these bands that have been together ever since um, the late eight, late 90s, early 2000s, um, that resurgence was pretty cool because a lot of people wanted to hear that music again, whether it was American hair metal or if it was British 
heavy metal, you know, new album stuff. It, it all came back in that in that late '90s, and for the for the most part, those bands have stuck around and stayed together, and they still got day jobs for the most part. Um, but you know, they can they can still get together, do small little tours, especially like the English bands, because you know they could just tour England real quickly, like a week or two, and then they go back to their jobs. So that's pretty cool. Um, they are from Whitley Bay, England. Their first album was Wildcat, and I like that album. It came out in 1980. Um, I think it, it's to me it's a it's a definitive one of the definitive albums of of um, the new album scene. Uh, if you are a fan of Metallica, they put out a fan can which had some. Uh, studio recordings on it and they did this they did a real brief version of euthanasia um so i i love that that first album is just to me prototypical new album um the sound was still very raw um but it it was uh it was pretty good the next album spellbound came out a year later a little bit more of an improvement sound wise they still had a they kind of perfected their new album sound on that album but um, they replaced uh, they replaced their singer. Uh, John Sykes was in the band for a little bit. Uh, he re- did he record? Did John Sykes record in the second album? Yes. Yeah. So you know John Sykes of White Snake and Thin Lizzy fame was on that album. Uh, left shortly thereafter for a variety of different reasons. So so he, re- I, he recorded on two albums. He did Spellbound. Oh, he was and Crazy, Crazy Nights in in 1981. So he did both bound both albums. So yeah. So. You know, John being on those albums, you know, lends. I mean, no one knew who he was. He was a really, basically, an up and coming, you know, guitar virtuoso that David Coverdale picked out and said, "Hey, I want you to do an album with me." And um, they got he he joined White Snake a couple years later, and from there had two really big albums with White Snake. So um, I like Tigers. You know, they were. Typical new album band to me. I mean, what what are your thoughts on them? I mean, I I kind of like the sound of of their second album better, but I understand like the Wildcat has really the better songs. It's just, it's it's unfortunate because you know like they they I think they got their sound down a little bit better, but it's not as raw. It's not as like new and exciting as Wildcat either. So right. You know, it didn't take long for them to kind of not sound as good, I guess. Like they, they, yeah, they were they were around till 1984, but like those those first few albums, I think that maybe the the changes in the group, you know, different members being replaced, etc., kind of did them a disservice. And that first album is just very strong. So I like them. Uh, I wish they had done you know, more in that time period, I guess. I mean, for those of you familiar with them, I mean, the first album had Euthanasia, Slave to Freedom, Don't Touch Me There, uh, Wildcats, Money, Killers. So it had some really cool songs. The reissue that came out in 1997 had a cover of ZZ Top's Tush. Um, So that was pretty cool. Um, I like their version of Tush. It's it's very new album kind of sounding, even though it's a, it's a, a ZZ Top song. They did a good job of converting it into a, a new album style song. Uh, and, and so there's a, a little bit of connection to Girl School, who would also later do a um, a cover of Tush. So kind of interesting. 
All right, so this is another band that um, would kind of be considered a moderate success, but maybe for a little bit different reason. Um, Demon from uh, Leek, Staffordshire, England. Um, they were f- they played originally from 1979 to 1992, and then from 1997 to present. Um, this band has a very loyal following, um, and that that's kind of why I would consider them a moderate success is because They've really never stopped, um, aside from um, in 1992. So, like for just a few years, but um, they they've maintained a fan base all this time, and they continue to release new albums. Um, they did have a little bit of a hang up, so they released "Night of the Demon" in 1981, and there's some amazing guitar work on here. Um, what I what I really like about it is it does have a little bit of that 1970s late 70s sound, but they did really start to incorporate the guitar work that you would hear in the new album sound, and that was a guy named Mal Spooner, who unfortunately passed away just let's see, uh, unfortunately passed away just three years later after this album came out. Um, it's really great guitar work. And if you're not familiar with the band, I definitely suggest checking them out. I have to be honest with you. And in this particular case, I was completely unaware of who Demon was. Um, that was that's one of the few bands that eluded me when this when uh, for this whole time period. Um, so not knowing who they were, it was was kind of like a, a surprise to me because. I've known I know a lot of these bands. Like I, I have a couple of compilations. So just to not see their name anywhere was kind of weird that they that they they kind of show up as being a, a one of the more successful bands of that time period. And so it kind of stunned me in that regards. Um, from what I from what I was able to pick up and listen to briefly, um, they were pretty cool. Um, you know, it's a shame that Mal Spooner passed away when he did because I believe that would have been. Uh, uh, definitely a big help to continue to keep them, you know, in, in a certain mode, I guess you could say of, of songwriting and, 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 and playing and sound. Oh, for sure. That, that continuity when it's broken up, when you have a chemistry in a band uh, and especially when you lose a member, um, you know, not due to necessarily just wanting to leave or something, but because they pass away that that can change everything. Absolutely. All right, so last on this list of moderate successes uh, is going to be a band uh, that many of you are familiar with, um, and you're familiar with it because of another band. And this band that we're talking about is Samson. Um, they uh, came out in 1976. They have lasted, or they lasted all the way up until 2002. They're from London. I mean, their claim to fame is two things. One, Thunderstick on drums. And if many of you don't know who Thunderstick is, he was a drummer who, for whatever reason, chose to dis- to to dress himself up in a in a bondage outfit to play drums, and he had a mask, um, a bondage mask on his face as he played drums. How he survived and didn't pass out every night playing drums, I don't know. But the the bigger claim to fame is that Bruce. Dickinson was their singer for a short period of time, and uh, his name was Bruce Bruce on their records. Um, he appeared on, I believe, two of their albums, um, 
and yeah, this, uh, he, the second and the third. Although, if you have the deluxe edition of the original album, uh, he's on the bonus tracks. Right. So, um, so their first album was Survivors, um, where Paul Sampson was on vocals and guitar, and that came out in 1979. That also had Chris El. Aylmer on bass and Thunderstick on drums. They released a, a song called Tomorrow and or Yesterday on Metal for Mothers. And then in 1980, Bruce Dickinson joined uh, and he was on the Head On album as well as Shock Tactics in 1981. Um, and I, you know, I was listening to some new album songs on, on, on my Spotify playlist and one of their songs came on. I can't remember which one it was. And immediately, immediately I could say, Bruce Dickinson, and it, it 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 made the song that much cooler because he's got such a way of of singing and such a style to him that it was it's so identifiable. But it does make it it makes the songs that much better. It, it's very very unique circumstance for for someone like like that to be able to um, improve something just by being able to sing on it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think. The first album's not bad, but it, it's a huge improvement with his vocals on the second and third album. Um, second album is probably the best because even by the third album, they were starting to have some internal problems, and not necessarily with the band, but just really bad management again. Um, their tours were derailed by the management not clearing things, um, basically they would show up to play a show and they weren't supposed to and stuff like that. Like there was all kinds of issues and the, the, everyone in the band was just kind of like, screw this. Um, Bruce got the, you know, the go ahead, like hey, Rod Smallwood said, you know, this is not working out. If you, re if you really want to make it, there's this band Iron Maiden. They just fired their singer. You should audition for Iron Maiden. And we all know where history went from there. Yes, we all know where history went from there in that clandestine meeting <laughs> in the back of the Reading Festival <laughs> in 1981. Um, you know, look, if if the writing's on the wall in one band and the writing has already been written, and no pun intended because of Iron Maiden's writings on the wall song, um, is, you know, the writing on the wall is already written on another band you know, you, you make your decision. I mean, he, he quote unquote auditioned, but bottom line is he knew he was making a band, you know, and the band knew they wanted him. It was just a matter of making sure that the personalities worked. Yes. Um, and, and it did. It worked for a while. I mean, for basically 11 years, they were together at that point. And then Bruce went on his own way and came back a few years later. So, you know, it, it's, it's one of those things where Samson just, for the most part, imploded. You know, they 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 were. I mean, think about it. The Reading Festival, nineteen eighty one. They were higher on the bill than Iron Maiden, and Iron Maiden had their that great debut in nineteen eighty, a year earlier, and then Samson is still higher on the bill than Iron Maiden, but you know that would change just a short while later. And really dependent on Bruce. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, it's it's one of those things where, you know, Bruce Bruce was the was the catalyst for that, and you know, we all know we're all big Iron Maiden fans, so it's absolutely understandable how that how that worked. All right, so moving on to the successes, um, we're going to talk about 
the band that we're going to do for our Big Four tonight. Um, this is Saxon. Uh, they formed in 1977, and they've been playing ever since. Uh, they only had uh, only four albums during this time period. Um, they had their self-titled record in 1979, uh, Wheels of Steel in 1980, Strong Arm of the Law again in 1980, and Denim and Leather in 1981. Um, so all of these records had the same lineup, Biff Byford on vocals, Graham Oliver on guitar, Paul Quinn on guitar, uh, Steve Dawson on bass, and Pete Gill on drums. And one thing about this band, and w one of the big reasons they would be considered a success for multiple reasons, not just because of their music, but because of their style. Uh, Denim and Leather is something that is closely associated with the metal genre. Um, to this day, people wear battle jackets, wear leather jackets, um, that, you know, that look that you see, you think of when you see these guys at the metal shows that have been to, you know, hundreds of shows and wear the patches in honor of the bands they've seen or the bands they love. This is, this is a part of it. Denim and leather is, is not just a saying, but it's, it is the, um, the vibe of metal, I would say. No other song epitomizes what heavy metal, and in this instance, the new wave of British heavy metal, uh, means more than that song, Denim and Leather. Uh, I mean, it's just the description of what they do on a Friday night, go to see your local band, you know, you know influence you to want to play guitar, to play bass, to play drums, to, 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 to be a singer in front of the band, you know, repeating some of the lyrics. It is such a cool song, and yes, it is definitely, you know, as I talked about, it's more of it's more than just a fashion statement. But the the denim and leather is the fashion of heavy metal. It really is, um, and this band has been going strong all this time. And one thing I find really great is that Biff still has really strong group vocals after all this time, since playing in 1977. Uh, in fact, he just recently appeared on an Amon Amarth album. That, he, he's, oh my God. So, you, you say how strong his vocals are, okay? I mean, he, he, the epitome of that song. So, you know, we talk about denim and leather, right? That's, that's the epitome of heavy metal. The song that's featured on the, the Amon Amarth album is called Saxons and Vikings, which is the epitome of English versus Scandinavian. Okay, versus the Nordic region of, of the world, you know, Vikings versus Saxons. And it, what better thing to have than to have the singer of Saxon, you know, having a duet with the singer of Amon Amarth, you know, the, the epitome of Viking music. That is so freaking cool. And he did a killer version, you know, not, it's not a version. He did a killer job on that song. So that is really cool. You know, Saxon, for me, I got into them. Probably 1983, uh, maybe 82 or something like that. You know, right around the time MTV started, um, and I got into metal. And Denim and Leather was the first album I picked up, and that's just an amazing album. And sadly enough, other albums influenced me more. And I never picked up another Saxon album, even though I knew about certain stuff because they were, for the most part, they were imported, so it was hard to pick them up. Um, you know, unless you went to a record store that had imports. And, you know, I ended up picking up the ACDCs and the Judas Priest because those were major labels. But um, Zaxxon, I just had seen them. I had heard 
some of their their music, but I just never got into purchasing anything other than denim and leather till much later in, in my life. Their early stuff is amazing. I mean, those first four albums that you're referring to that came out during this particular time period that we're talking about are awesome. Just amazing albums. I mean, you have to, if you're out there, pick it up there. If you don't have them, just amazing. So, and to, and to this day for him to still sing as good as he does, that's, that's another incredible thing. Here's the other thing that was, I think you and I talked about it briefly. They re-recorded some of their classic songs from back in the day in, was it 1999? And if, if I could tell you those, those versions, and let me, let me say the versions of the songs, because the, the recordings, part of it leaves something to be desired. Other parts of it are really, really good. Um, I think the, the guitar was, work is Yeah, the guitar work fantastic. is incredible. The drums leave a bit to be desired because of the, the recording style. Exactly. But the versions of the songs are just as good as they were back then. And Biff sings them with just as much enthusiasm as he did back then. And that is something that not a lot of bands do when they do their re-recorded versions. They don't get the same angst. They don't get the same energy. You know, a very, very evident version of that is Twisted Sisters Still Hungry. Or... Or even more so to me, even more than St- Still Hungry, is uh, Man of War's re-recordings of their albums. Right, and you mentioned that to me. Um, it is if if the so the reason I bring up Still Hungry is because you think about the the name of the the, the album Stay Hungry, and you can see how hungry they were back then. The the, the angst that they had in their in their their vocals. I mean, we're not going to take it, and I want rock specifically, <laughs> yeah. especially. I want to rock. I mean, the way that he sang it and then you hear the still hungry version and it's like, you're not hungry, dude. You just had your meal and you're fat and you're rich. Okay. It just does not come across. The yeah. Same they're more hungry now, for a salad on that one. Now, granted D Snyder did go all the way down to, uh, the bottom of, of being nearly penniless at, at one point. In his career, after Twisted Sister had made it famous and built his his empire back up, but um, still, this just the the whole thing about Still Hungry is just it doesn't come across the same. The versions that Biff and the band did when they re-recorded it, those are really really good versions. I just wish that the drum sound had been a little bit better because the guitar sound is great on it and his vocals are great. A hundred percent agreed on that one. All right, so who do you got? We only got two more bands to talk about. All right, let's go ahead and talk about Def Leppard real quick on the successes. Um, Def Leppard uh, was a new album band, new wave of British heavy metal. And most of us know who Def Leppard is, but just a really quick synopsis. They were uh, formed in 1977 as Atomic Mass, um, but then they uh, Joe Elliott joined a little while later and they renamed the band Def Leppard. Um, in 1979, they came out with the Def Leppard EP that featured Joe Elliott, Pete Willis on guitar, Steve Clark on guitar, Rick Savage on bass, and Frank Noon on drums. He did the sessions. A short while later, uh, Rick Allen would join the band as a 15-year-old and would record their debut album. I listened once again to um, the Def Leppard EP and Get Your Rocks Off is such a new album song. I mean, it's it, it's almost the epitome of new album um, when you listen to that song. And 
it's funny because the band had a, they always had an idea of where they were going. And I think Nuwabam and the scene that they were in was a means to an end. Because I don't think at, at any point did they think they were going to be a, a heavy metal band. They had an idea. They were, they were more influenced by a Bowie and a, um, what's the other guy that, that, that's big on a T-Rex? You know, that was more of their influence than, say, a Judas Priest or a Black Sabbath or an ACDC. And so High and Dry comes out. They they go slightly different direction. Pyromania comes out, definitely different direction. And when Hysteria comes out, it's like, you know, they're way different direction. So, but for the time period we're talking about here, the Def Leppard EP, and On Through the Night, and High and Dry, those are new album albums, uh, especially On Through the Night, you know, and then they just kind of start perfecting their sound on high and dry, and they just keep perfecting each each you know consecutive release from that point on. Yeah, I mean, I I really like High and Dry. I think that's possibly my favorite Def Leppard album. It's hard to choose sometimes because I do like Pyromania, but Pyromania is in a different direction for sure. It's gone more into that arena, you know, big sound that they would go on to later, even further with Hysteria. But um, On Through the Night is is really cool. Um, you know, definitely their their strongest sound in the new album sound. High and Dry still carries some of that over. Um, but yeah, like you said, by the time 1982 rolls around, they have a, they've really changed out of that. And they've become pioneers in a different direction. Um, but this is a band that's been around... All this time, they had mostly the same lineup for a long time. Steve Clark, unfortunately, did pass away. Um, when did he pass away? That was... He passed away after Hysteria came out. Yeah. I mean, the, the big... The, they did have some lineup changes because they fired Pete Willis. They fired Pete um, Willis, and, replaced him with Phil Collin. Right. And that was during... That was after Pyromania came out. Yes. So that's that's it's it's weird to think about because you like you so associate Phil Collin with Pyromania because he's in the video for Rock of Ages and Photograph. But, you know, so he he, you know, uh Pete Willis was fired right after the album was released or right after the album was recorded or something like that, you know. And Phil Collin has been there ever since. Um and you know, many most everyone can see Pete Willis right away when they see the the videos from high and dry with uh, Saturday night, high and dry, let it go, bring on the heartbreak. You know, Pete is featured front and center right there. He's the, the, the first guy you see on those videos. Yeah. Phil Collin did record on, on uh, pyromania too. Pyromania. He, he, but he only recorded guitar solos cause he got brought in during the process. Um, yeah, Pete Willis was rhythm guitar on all the tracks, and I believe he was fired during the recording of the album. Okay, um, I couldn't remember exactly how the timeline went. Yeah, the li- the likelihood is we may mention Def Leppard on the next episode, but for the most part, they've they've already phased themselves out of the new album group. So um, even just in, by nineteen eighty two. So I think that's that is kind of interesting. But they they've had this longevity all this time. They're they're a huge act. People still love to go see them. They still sound great, and it's a testament to the the musicians. And Phil Collins, um, 
about as ripped as it gets for a guitarist for a guy his age. <laughs> I mean, absolutely. I mean, he's a vegan. Um, him and his wife, you know, are, are vegans, and they they just they work out all the time. I mean, he's one of these guys. He's like um, George Lynch. Just loves to take the shirt off and and show <laughs> off the fact that they're ripped at that age, right? Because they, you know, George is what in the sixties. Phil's in his late fifties, and they just still look amazing. Yeah. Um, and to touch upon something you mentioned that they still sound good and the, and the vocals and all that, that that was something that Joe Elliott mentioned in an interview recently where the reason why when you go to see a Def Leppard show, they tell you it's all live. Uh, you know, the drums are electronic. We know that. Obviously, they have to be. But it's him playing. But it, But it's not just that. That's part of their sound, too, the electronic drums. Right, exactly, and it's him. It wouldn't you know, feel he right if it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> right, you know, um, it's he's triggering these sounds. That's just that's the Def Leppard sound. But vocally, Joe mentioned that all the way back to 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 on through the night. One thing that this band always focused on was having really good background vocals, really good loud gang vocals that they all sounded good and they all harmonized so well together. Mm-hmm. Um and that they they do it all the way through their entire career. This is not a gimmick. This is not something that's uh when you go to the show they basically you hear background tapes of their vocals. No, that is them playing. And that is what's really cool about Def Leppard. So much so, Phil Collin produced not the this latest Tesla album, but the previous one that came out of two two years ago, I think it was. He produced their album, and you can hear their influence and in how he kind of gave them some of that science to to recording their background vocals. Uh, for Tesla's album, so it's it's kind of interesting, but there is there's there's a science to it, and there's a, there's a there's a besides the fact that you got five guys that can sing, you know, you have to record it. You still have to make it sound good. They have their their way about them, you know. On through the night, pretty cool album, you know, high and dry, amazing album, and you know, all in that new album era, and they definitely uh, stand out to this day. And they so. made their mark for sure. All right, last but not least, what do we got? So, you may have heard of this band, but or may not I have. I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't know. Uh, I don't, and what's interesting know. is also this is a little bit of a time capsule because of, of the lineup that is on these albums. Um, but this is Iron Maiden. Uh, we saved them for last. Uh, from 1975 to present, uh, just actually released a new album last year. And they are from London, England. Uh, their first release was the Soundhouse tapes in 1979. Uh, at that time, Paul Diano was on vocals, and you might not recognize all of these names unless you're a big Maiden fan. Um, Dave Murray on guitar, Paul Cairns on guitar, uh, Steve Harris on bass, and Doug Sampson on drums. So that is not the typical first Iron Maiden lineup that you would necessarily hear, at least from the first album. Um, They had two tracks on the Metal for Mothers uh, album, and that was Sanctuary and Wrathchild. Those are unique versions of those those particular recordings. Um, A little bit different, really cool. Uh, Where... Can you hear those now? Because they're not just necessarily on Metal for Mothers. They were re-released on, like, the, the box set. 
if you get the single that came out during the the era with Blaze Bailey on vocals, there was a single that came out after um, X Factor called for the song called Virus. The B side to Virus had the two songs that appeared on Metal from Others. Oh. That is where you can get it. And I believe that's the only place you can get it. What I what I thought when you asked me that question, the first thing I came up with was uh, Best of the Beast, but that's actually the Soundhouse tapes that you can get on that. And if you actually get the vinyl version of Best of the Beast, you get all the Soundhouse tapes. On the CD version, you only get a couple songs. So continuing on, um, they released two albums during this period, Iron Maiden in 1980. Uh, this So this lineup was Paul Deano on vocals, Dave Murray on guitar, Dennis Stratton on guitar, uh, Steve Harris on bass, and Clive Burr on drums. Um, Dennis Stratton would leave Iron Maiden in October of 1980, and Adrian Smith would be brought in to replace him. Uh, this lineup would record Killers. Some of the stuff was leftover material from the previous album, uh, and it has a little bit better recording quality. I really like the first album. I know um, Steve Harris tends to think it sounds really bad, but I 100% disagree. Um, and then r- not long after this, in September of 1981, we mentioned earlier, uh, then um, Bruce Dickinson would join the band not long after that. Uh, I guess it was right at the end of 1981. He joined, he joined at the end of 81... Um, I mean, they, they, they knew exactly what they were doing as far as, you know, they wanted Bruce, Bruce, you know, when they talked to him, Bruce wanted them, uh, as I mentioned before, and they already kind of had some ideas of where they were going for this new album. And there's a lot of stories out there when it comes to the, the, the songs behind number of the beast, but, um, essentially they had a short period of time to write new music record the new music and release it now if you think about the period of time if if they fired paul in september let's say they hire bruce a week or two later or maybe a month whatever however long it took you know you're talking about october november december by the time december came around there are bootlegs out there of bruce dickinson singing uh right before christmas singing um i believe it was run to the hills uh, and and another song off of Number of the Beast. They recorded it in February of 1982. So there's there's a timeline problem because Steve says that they only had a certain amount of time to to write and record the songs, and it doesn't jive with the fact that Bruce was singing these songs in December. So regardless of how the story went, Bruce helped write songs for number of the beast but was not contractually able to get songwriting credits so yes uh 1981 was a very pivotal year in the life of iron maiden yeah and like i said at the top of of this section was that it was kind of a time capsule because this is the first wave of british heavy metal and it kind of ends in 1982 and just with that iron maiden's first major lineup ends in 1981 right before that time so it's interesting that all these things kind of changed and shifted for the next wave that's coming out um uh, there's a lot of fans that think that this is the only lineup that matters of of 
Iron Maiden, and really their their greatest successes would come along with that second wave of of a uh, new album. So I love these albums. I think they're great. Uh, there's a lot of times when a vocalist changes in a band, and it's really hard to continue on. Uh, but but Bruce has that that it factor and his singing ability is amazing and i love his voice um that we would see in the next round of the the, these bands appearing but um the iron maiden of this period is very raw very filled with attitude there is something magical about this time because you have guys that are showing up to shows with fake cardboard guitars playing along in the audience. There's there's just a, a vibe of um, this is a scene that people want to be part of and something that is different and against kind of kind of counterculture at the time. And it's it's just so good. I, I, I love Iron Maiden of this period. I you know I got into Iron Maiden in 1982, um, when after the Number of the Beast album came out. Going back, you know, I remember seeing guys with the Killers T-shirts. Uh, I remember my my a friend of mine that was uh, living around the corner from my cousin. His brother had the Killers album sitting there on his on his nightstand. Um, just you know, this time period for Iron Maiden was very special, and you you, you just never knew back then what was going to happen and you just knew that that this band was going places um you know from the soundhouse tapes you could you could feel the energy if anybody doesn't have the soundhouse tapes they're really expensive to get it's a seven inch record so don't let anybody fool you into thinking it's a 12 inch the only way it was released was on a seven inch vinyl and um, like I said, if you get Best of the Beast on vinyl, which is really expensive right now to get, they do have, uh, I believe, all the songs from the Soundhouse tapes, including the unreleased Strange World, which that that also came out on the CD. Um, and so you can get the Soundhouse tapes, but listening to the first album, you re- you get a really good glimpse of the of the rawness and energy that that Iron Maiden can bring soon as those first chords to prowler hit um so it definitely definitely um a very special band yeah i mean they're they're one of my favorites all the way back from this time period on i mean when you when you think about it if you listen to the two songs that came out on metal, metal for mothers compared to everything else you can see that they stand way above everybody else it is just amazing how different they are energy wise, production wise, professionalism wise. They are just so different from everybody else that's on that on that recording. I'd agree with that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's bands like those always stand out in a crowd, and that's in this particular case they definitely did. All right. Well, that was quite the experience to go through, um, and that's only part one of this multi-part series. Um, so the next one, we're going to have some more, some more information on the bands from 1981-ish, late 81, into the middle 80s, what, 1985, you said? So basically what we're going to do is we're going to recap some of these bands and what they've gone on to do from this point, and then the next wave, new bands that, that from 1982 on, like you said, 
appeared in the second wave of new album. So we, we did a couple of episodes before where we talked about hair metal and we talked about, or the glam scene, I guess, technically. I know some people don't like the term hair metal, um, but it, you know, it is a, that title for a reason too. Um, but also we've done uh, thrash metal. So we're going to continue in that same kind of vein with this. All right. Well, that brings us to the big four for tonight, and we are doing the big four Zaxxon songs. Um, so in this particular case, I'm going to go ahead and go first okay. uh, with my big four Zaxxon songs. Um, <clears throat> all right. So number four for me comes off of the 1984 album Crusader, and it is the title track, Crusader. Um, just to you know, it's kind of an epic kind of song. You know, the, the cool thing about early Saxon, and even they touch upon it now, was that they were very similar to how Amon Amarth is nowadays. They talk about their history. They talk about their lineage as far as being English is concerned and what Saxons were back in the day. And that's how they, you know, that's why they're named that. So Crusader is definitely the epitome of that kind of, of storytelling and that's a really cool song uh the next song uh came out in 1980 song number three for me is wheels of steel also another title track um off the wheels of steel album that's just just killer riff i mean i love the riff on that song and you know and it's a good song i mean it's catchy and you just it's one of those songs you just want to like get in a car and drive to you know or for the most part get on a motorcycle and ride you know, as, as far as you can. Um, number two, um, for me comes off of their major label debut of the album. Innocence is no excuse from 1985. It's the song broken heroes. Um, that is where they, you know, they began their quest to, to cross over into, into the United States, uh, try to get, you know, that American success that many British bands were, were, were beginning to attain. They never quite got there, but this song was the start of their their attempt. It's a really cool song. I really like the track because it has a lot to do with um, soldiers coming home from war, essentially, and how they're being treated. Um, So it's a pretty cool song. And number one for me, another title track from from the 1981 album, Denim and Leather. It is Denim and Leather, the epitome of the new wave of British heavy metal. We talked about it earlier. It's a great song. It's my number one. It's a good list. Uh, mine is a little different because I, um, I kind of got into them at a later stage. You said you were more of an early fan and that's, that's something that happens with us a lot is, is, you know, we're from diff- two different age groups. So sometimes we have a different aesthetic, but um, some of ours, does crossover in time periods, but there's no crossover in songs. Um, my first one is, or my first one, my number four is 747 Strangers in the Night off of Wheels of Steel. I just really like that track. Um, you know, that that album, I think, is possibly my favorite of that time period. It has the best recording on it. Um sometimes with those old metal albums it is a factor of the recording was just so bad at the time it was harder for me to get into until i could really learn to appreciate it later in life so sometimes my um 
the albums that to me that resonate and they have that nostalgia factor were ones that had maybe a little bit better recording quality at the time. Um, my number three is Witchfinder General off of Lionheart. Um, Lionheart was the first album I owned by Saxon, and Witchfinder General is the first track off that album, and it's an awesome one. Um, that comes from the kind of two middle early 2000s and um, that was really when I was getting into finding a lot of these bands because back then we didn't have mp3s and cds and stuff like I mean not, not cds but we didn't have mp3s and and iTunes and that kind of stuff and so finding some of this stuff was harder and that was the only album that I could find and luckily it was an awesome one it's still probably my favorite to this day um, and my number two is Princess of the Night from Denim and Leather. Uh, great track. Like you said, Denim and Leather is a great album. It really is. There's a lot of really awesome stuff on there, but Princess of the Night to me sticks out. Uh, I love the riff on that song. And then my number one is off of Battering Ram. It's the title track, Battering Ram. Um, this is a heavy song. It just kicks a lot of ass. And if you've never heard it, if you if you're one of the the people that have, you know that I'm stuck in the time period of the early age of metal. Um, there's nothing wrong with that, but there is something to be said for giving a lot of these bands a chance because they're still out there kicking ass. They're still out there putting out good music. And one thing about it is, you think about the drumming on this album. You have a drummer that's that's been playing since the the 70s that has only increased in skill, only improved and and really come into the modern era with modern skill. And that doesn't happen and is still playing to this day with that skill level. I was going to say the same thing because you know, I saw them live. I saw them open for Judas Priest in, back in 2018 and to know that that's the drum that's the drummer that's been there since the 80s. You know, he's not the original drummer, but he's been there for a exactly. while. And it, it is just amazing to know how skilled that guy is. And very similar to AJ Pirro when he was with Twisted Sister and Adrenaline Mob. In Twisted Sister, he could not show off his skills. I mean, there was a couple of songs that happened later on. I mean, he did some really cool drum work when, when uh, with the song um, uh, Tear It Loose on their first album. But you don't see the technical skill until way later and then when he joined adrenaline mob he was let loose i mean the guy was one of the best drummers out there and this dude who plays with zaxon i can't remember his name um he is by far one of the better drummers to come out of that era um and still doing it with with top-notch skills i mean it's, it's you know, double bass and you know the speed in which he Nigel plays is just amazing Nigel Block Glocker? Glocker. Nigel is a badass drummer, okay? And for being his age, that is just doubly impressive to me. 100%. So I I like your list. Um I mean there's not like you said there's nothing wrong with choosing some of the older songs. Um they're they're classics for a reason. Um I didn't pick the newer songs because in my particular opinion, um I it's not that I prefer the older songs. It's just I think those older songs are just overall better. Um, but they've got a lot of really cool songs on the newer albums. So definitely give them a listen. I mean, they've been around 
for 40 years, more than 40 years, and they've got a lot of albums. Was it 23 of them or something like that that I counted the other day? Yeah, so 437, it's, it's, actually, at this point. <laughs> they put one out every, like, Ten minutes. three months. <laughs> so, I mean, it's it's they got quite the incredible um, uh, discography. So just pick it up and check it out, or even just listen to it on Spotify if you have to. Um, give it a chance, because they are really cool. All right, well, that's our big four Zaxxon songs, and that's the end of this week's show. If you haven't done so already, it's never too late to like, subscribe, or download the show on your favorite podcast platform so you can listen to us, Chris and I, anytime, anyplace, anywhere. And don't forget you can interact with us by commenting on our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can send us a DM as well. If you listen to us on YouTube, be sure to leave us a comment, or you can send us an email to debatingmetal at gmail.com. So remember to tune in next week as we continue our discussion with part two of the new wave of British heavy metal. On behalf of Kenneth and myself, stay safe and always turn it up to 11. See ya.